AVXL episode 140 was recorded on May 21st, 2021. What's coming to a screen near you? Rob's got the word from Display Week. Apple Music goes lossless and spatial, but hey, Bluetooth audio is still lossy. Grado's got new drivers. Epson's got a lawsuit. Wood monitors and so much more. Don't forget, email ask at avxl.com if you've got a question for us. And thanks to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Your monthly donations make the show possible. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Well, Navy Excel, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. The lossless audio battles are getting more interesting. Uh, Apple Music announced Spatial. I'm leaping into the show this week. <laughs> Do it. Do it now. Apple's announced that uh, Apple Music is getting Spatial audio with Dolby Atmos. They're going to bring lossless audio to their entire catalog in June. Twitter, as Twitter does, kind of went berserk. The internet was all excited. This is for Apple Music subscribers. I was kind of laughing, question mark, that a lot of websites were just shocked, shocked. Shocked I am that there's no lossless streaming to the HomePod or the AirPods Pro or even the mighty AirPods Max. Because a lot of people don't realize that there is no way to do lossless audio on Bluetooth. Even LDAC or AppDex would have, which have like, you know, 600 or just under uh, 600 uh, kilobit or just under a megabit of streaming capacity of memory serves are not lossless. And they require kind of a recompression thing. And that's one of the advantages of, of AAC or ALAC on iPhones is that SBC doesn't recompress it, although I suppose it could be recompressing ALAC, but I don't want to get sidetracked. Rumors are starting that Apple has an actual lossless streaming codec coming for their headphones. Uh, there was a really good note. It's kind of buried in a, a newsletter, but Jay Martin's the editor-in-chief over at Audio Express, you know, wrote this great thing discussing the lossless battles. I'm just going to quote him here. As Qualcomm and Sony learned, codecs need to be supported on the source and sync sides. For Apple, that could be easier to do, but not as a lossless format over Bluetooth. It is always more effective to use AAC or even the new LC3 codec adopted by Bluetooth LE Audio, which might improve transmission efficiency, but will not affect the subjective quality impression of the original stream, even with a few removed bits. It's messy. Uh, I've thought about that a lot as I've been playing around with a bunch of different Bluetooth headsets and how they respond to different phones, for example. And uh, Sean Olive, audio researcher extraordinaire, senior fellow at Harman, past president of the Audio Engineering Society, reminds us, and I, and I should point out that I edited together a couple of tweets, the scientific literature looking at controlled listening tests with trained listeners indicates that a 320 kilobit per second AAC LC is transparent with five channel music, which is much more complicated than two channel. The ratings, right? Uh, a difference rating of zero means nobody can tell. Most of the ratings on the test information he published or, or posted on Twitter, he says, uh, most of these ratings are around a 0.5 rating, which I suspect is statistically insignificant and or barely audible and that this is more about keeping up with the competitors who offer lossless. I think this is a great thing. One of the things that's come out is also people have been exploding around MQA. We talked about that uh, recently. One thing I just learned is, is that if you have your music in MQA on title, there is no actual non-MQA lossless version of your files, which is actually why Neil Young pulled all of his stuff off of title because he was so pissed because his stuff was being tweaked by title. Yeah, I'm not an MQA fan. I do love, uh, you know, all of my flacks are lossless because flack is lossless. I rip a lot of stuff from CD. I've been buying a lot of stuff from Bandcamp lately. 
I am delighted. It may be unnecessary, but I'm delighted that uh, Apple's bringing lossless. I'm very, very curious to see what this does to Tidal and Cobuzz and others, because that means now Amazon and Apple are offering uh, lossless options. Oh, and Amazon dropped their high-def audio, which I don't care about, but they dropped everything down a bracket, so it's now 30% less expensive for Amazon Music HD. But that's a conversation for another day, because cool. um, I can get way too confused about that and we have a lot to talk about with display week we do more than i think you expected <laughs> indeed and yeah just a quick mention though i too encode all of my cd audio to flac files which are lossless it would be super nice to be able to stream that in a lossless quality to right. a pair of wireless headphones or earbuds that's really one of the things that keeps me corded to my phone or mobile device in general. Can I actually hear the difference? I haven't actually tested myself. But the fact that I went to all the <laughs> trouble to make lossless backups of my content and not be able to do that wirelessly across a set of earbuds or to a pair of headphones is a little annoying still in this day and age of Bluetooth everything. Yeah, Bluetooth LE is not the be-all, end-all answer. I am really curious to see what Apple's going to do in terms of what yeah. codecs they're going to use, how they're going to transport that, because clearly you can't be doing the decoding in the earbud or the headphone that could just eat up CPU cycles, cut your battery by a significant, more than significant amount. By the way, I was stumbling over my own tongue. Uh, Amazon Music HD, they dropped the price to $9.99, uh, or the other way of looking at it is uh, Amazon Music uh, Unlimited now gets... Amazon Music HD for $9.99 instead of 15 bucks a month. Very cool. I have some issues with Amazon Prime's app, which uh, is something that I hope someday to get an answer out uh, from Amazon. I'm not holding my breath, but you know, it's kind of crazy when you realize you can now get Amazon's entire lossless catalog and their HD stuff. I think it's like $9.99 a month if you're not an Amazon Prime member, $7.99 a month if you're a Prime member. Uh, so obviously Amazon is girding itself for battle with Apple. And of course, Spotify rumors are still floating around. Spotify is going to be doing a lossless version. We wait with bated breath. Oh, yeah. Mobile OLED was, I guess, all over Display Week. Indeed. It's the thing. The Society of Information Displays annual Display Week conference is finishing up today, I believe. And yeah, mm -hmm. mobile OLED dominated the show in terms of, well, everybody was showing off some type of rollable or foldable or flexible plastic-based OLED design. This included even a Samsung product that had a dual fold, so it could flex both ways. Another trend I noticed across the show was that under-display cameras are going to be a thing sooner rather than later. Everyone was showing updated designs for improving camera quality as well as just making it more seamless when you look at a screen that actually has a camera underneath of it. The thing that really caught my attention overall is that emissive displays, as we talk about OLEDs and other types of mm -hmm. displays that actually make the light you see directly at the surface, those displays are coming in even greater quantities than I could have expected. Today's quantum.tvs, if you look at the LCDs that are out there currently, they use a quantum.film that generates a robust white light that is then filtered by RGB subpixels into the colors we see. Emissive quantum dot is stimulating color-tuned quantum dot materials with electricity instead of photons doing away with the backlight system altogether. Corning highlighted that they are ready to go with anybody looking to build one of these emissive quantum dot displays, and they have the glass just waiting for you. 
These announcements so far seem to go along very nicely with inkjet printed display designs and the technology, and it appears to be maturing quite nicely. BOE showed off probably the most impressive demo at the show. It was a 55-inch, quote-unquote, world's first 4K Active Matrix QLED display that gives you OLED-like contrast. It uses RGB subpixels that are inkjet printed, covers 90% of BT2020, well in exceeding hmm. just about any display you could think of today. AUO and JOLED are also showing off prototype inkjet printed OLED panels up to 32 inches in size. This should all just continue to expand quite nicely in the coming months. The big questions I had before this show was, what is the current state of this inkjet printing technology for OLEDs, as well as what sizes, and are the materials ready to be put into a product that will last more than, say, a year? <laughs> is there any downside to these materials? And across the board, it seems like everyone's ready to go with the inkjet printing technologies that will introduce effectively lower cost OLED like TVs. I'd say within the next two years, we'll have actual products in hand, or let's just say at CES 2022, we will actually see prototypes that are very close, if not already to be introduced into the market. It should lower the price for OLED entry for everyone and create even better, higher performing displays. Samsung also highlighted its diamond pixel design for mobile displays, which was interesting. I mean, that's been a feature of theirs for a while. Effectively, each pixel is a diamond shaped with quadrants blocked off for blue, red, and green in order to make the colors that you see on the screen. They were highlighting not only just the color purity with their RGB OLED design versus a white OLED and then filter design that you see on things like LG OLED TVs, but they were also highlighting that they are also looking at inkjet printed OLED designs that use a striped pattern, in addition to being able to punch the OLED refresh rate from its current about 120 hertz refresh rates up to 360. That to me was something I think we'll see more of trickling into consumer televisions is the fact that these OLED screens already have very fast pixel response times. It should be relatively easy for them to do something like a 360 hertz OLED panel in the future for things like, of course, gaming, but just the smoothness of being able to have a panel that could go that fast, even for desktop use would be pretty nice. LG was also on hand, and they were just simply highlighting OLED efficiency with its latest panel designs. It was slightly unclear to me if this was referring to the new Neo OLED panels that they are currently deploying in some of their lineup. However, it's just a good thing when OLED folks are talking about not only the inkjet printing stuff, but in addition just to simply making a panel that can be just as bright with less electricity or potentially even brighter with the same amount of electricity. If there was one oddity that I uh, came across while perusing the virtual show space at Display Week was a company called Woodoo, W-O-O-D-O-O, -O -O, <laughs> which I love that name for some reason, Woodoo, <laughs> Woodoo.com. And they have this product called the Jasper Digital Wood Paneling. And I'll read a quote here. No, no I won't actually. That's a pretty crazy You can sentence. read the quote. <laughs> Jasper wood paneling is an LED display unit covered with Voodoo Slim patented translucent wood, ideal to assemble custom screen walls or partitions with integrated screens for indoor use. This elegant and innovative product is perfect for the digitalization of shopping centers and stores, airports and train stations, cultural venues, 
or at the back of the stage in a theater. It reveals the naturalness of wood when switched off and offers unprecedented visual rendering and chromatic quality when lit. A translucent wood LED display, or as Voodoo likes to call it, augmented wood for indoor use only, of course. But I first was tempted just to blow this off, but the website, when I took a look at it, mentioned the fact that they are actually using real wood veneers. And these hmm. displays can also be touch enabled and they showed off some heat formable shapes. So it didn't just have to be a, you know, a rectangular flat plane. It could actually be used in something, say automotive applications and other uses where you might need a custom fitted formed surface that not only integrates a touch function, but can also be a mini or technically a micro LED display built right into it. I wouldn't say these are the highest resolution displays you're talking. They're going through wood. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so if you wanted to create a wood looking surface, actually real wood surface, technically, <laughs> uh, with an LED display integrated into it, be it for a wall or signage or something to catch the eye. It was just one of those things that kind of made me smile thinking it was kind of a goof and then the more i looked at it it's like no they're legit offering a variety of wood types and trims and eh, this is definitely not something you want to put together a tv for but it's more commercial than consumer but at the same point right. it was eye-catching for sure it is a beautiful beautiful thing I don't know. It's an interesting idea. They have some inter I love some of what they did with the sort of integrating things into car interiors and stuff like that. Not something you're going to watch your favorite, you know, Netflix series on. No, <laughs> no. But if you want wood with an integrated and potentially touch enabled LED display, it's available <laughs> and ready to go from the good folks. It's ready for you. Yes. Also, I had a uh, chance to calibrate a B series OLED. I think it was 2018 to B8. I will say, for 2018. And I ran into some interesting characteristics of what was a value OLED at the time compared to something mm -hmm. a little more advanced, like a C-series or above. One of it was the differences in calibration overall in terms of the absolute quality you could get through automated processes versus having to do things manually. It turns out that if you're a video file and you appreciate any kind of tweaking or calibrating, I would not suggest buying the least expensive OLED out there. They will always have the lowest end chipsets. And in the case of the B8, granted we're going all the way back to 2018, the chipset used in that particular TV was actually borrowed from the previous year. One of the things we talked about before the show, you said you, you thought even the cheapest OLEDs now uh, are using better chipsets than maybe the better OLED sets from a year or a couple of years ago. And, and you've talked extensively in the past about Sony offering the same panel, but with different programming and different chipsets, and that leads to a better experience. Are you thinking like at this point, even the cheaper OLEDs are using better chipsets than the older ones or... The trickle-down effect, literally every year, mm -hmm. it seems like whatever the good chipset is for that particular series, like in the case of, say, the One Series for this year from LG, if you look mm -hmm. at what the premium chip was for the 10 Series last year, that has now trickled down into their lower-cost models that are going to be out there. I'll be curious to see what their upcoming A model goes with. That's looking to be literally a competitor for LCD televisions in terms of which way to go. The pricing is going to be under a thousand bucks for something like an A series panel in the upcoming months for 55 inch or maybe even a 65 inch panel. But yeah, got it. 
it was interesting to take a look at something from even, uh, you know, two, three years ago now. And just to see how much it's improved and what the differences are. Overall, I found, actually, if you own a B8, fear not. It calibrates reference quality for SDR. But I found for HDR, it took a more hands-on approach to really get it to a quality that I would think OLED should be at, no matter the cost. And the other nice thing, at least with a panel like the B8, which reminded me of what I look at today, is the fact that brightness hasn't changed a hell of a lot. I was seeing about 750 nits peak out of something like a B8, and that's about what it is today. The more things change, the more they kind of stay the same in certain ways. That's <laughs> why going back real quick to the Society of Information Displays Display Week, I am mm -hmm. so fascinated with this inkjet printing technology and how this could just lead us into not only lower cost displays, but potentially better performance. It's all kind of rolling up into a, a very interesting year for OLED. And I honestly cannot wait to see what's coming up at CES 2022. Which will actually take space and meet space again. Maybe, maybe Which for is... some people. <laughs> You're not going? I doubt it. Uh, I, I, I understand that. It's easier to cover that show remotely. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not going to argue that, but it's hard to listen to new speakers or headphones remotely. Good point. Speaking of which, Craig, a.k.a. Damn Yeah Baby, tweets, thoughts, feelings, worth the upgrade? Have you had the pleasure yet? And uh, added a link to the new X drivers for the Prestige series. Uh, those are headphones from Grado Labs. Uh, those are headphones that um, really kind of sparked the whole idea of audiophile headphones, 25 Oh, so many years ago, like 25 plus years ago, it seems like it's their fourth evolution of the original drivers that are found on the SR60X, 80X, 125X, 225X, and 325X, if I got the uh, deets correct. Quote, features a more powerful magnetic circuit, a voice coil with decreased effective mass and reconfigured diaphragm. Re-engineering these components for our 44 millimeter drivers improve efficiency, reduces distortion, and preserves the harmonic integrity of your music. I have not heard them. Uh, I would not expect the basic tuning or sound signature to change. There's going to be a lot of detail. There's going to be an emphasis on the treble. The bass, depending on the model, is going to roll off uh, somewhere below 100 or 50 hertz, depending on uh, which particular version you're listening to. Uh, these are not your EDM headphones, right? If you need all of the sub-bass slamming your eardrums as you program in high speed as inspired by the hacker's music of oh so many years ago, or the hacker's movie, I should say, of oh so many years ago, which I love, by the way, I'm not mocking, but singer-songwriter jazz stuff can be super, super epic on these. I'm always a fan of making drivers lighter and stiffer and giving, you know, the, the magnet more power. Anytime you have more power accelerating and decelerating the driver, it's generally a positive thing. Uh, if the driver is stiff enough to not distort, which I think they're smart enough to do at Grado, it's just generally always a solid move for improving detail and accuracy, uh, especially on things like percussion. Symbols are hard. And that's one of the reasons why planar magnetics or electrostatics can be so magnificent is because they have so little mass and so much power to accelerate it with. I'm very, very curious to hear them and uh, see what is up with the crew in Brooklyn. They make them in Brooklyn. Uh, I hope someday to go to their shop because it's just legendary and epic and uh, props to them for working on accelerating the beast, which is my way of, I guess, saying advancing the technology used inside of the headphones. <laughs> nice. Hey, are all of Grado's designs still open back? Not all of them, but because uh, they do some in-ears now, but all oh, of okay. pretty much, I, I'm pretty sure all of the on-ear headphones are 
are open-backed. And that's part of why they're associated with having this big sound stage and this wide-open feeling. Got it. Yeah. Uh, you were in hell uh, trying to figure out what was going on with a Reds game. Giants were playing the Reds, and uh, you were watching that on YouTube. Sports yeah, Sports ball on the YouTubes! <laughs> it was the free game of the day, or the game of the week on YouTube. So they were streaming it. And I just had a couple of Atmos, yes, he says in brackets. In quotes. <laughs> and I made a fool of myself slightly by going on Twitter and proclaiming, hey, the game is being streamed in 4K. And it was showing up on my TV as being in Dolby Atmos, which was like, right. what? It's like, when did YouTube start streaming Dolby Atmos? And then I realized everything was being delivered in Dolby Atmos, no matter what source I was looking at through my Roku Ultra. And I quickly realized it must be a sound setting somewhere. And of course, I went into the audio setup and under HDMI, it listed, hey, it's in this automatic mode that simply converts everything up to whatever the, the highest quote unquote format you have available. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it's a Dolby Atmos soundbar. So it was converting everything to Dolby Atmos. Once I realized that, I did try the pass-through mode, and for the most part, everything was coming through as PCM audio, at least from the YouTube videos I was checking out, and generally, I found it sounded way worse and way more harsh, particularly at the high end, in terms of the frequency response. And in the end, I ended up leaving the Atmos conversion enabled just because it made the variety of audio formats you may receive, it seemed to do the best job of providing a good listening experience across the board. Whereas, you know, if I'm watching something in Dolby Vision, Dolby Atmos, I still get that functionality as well. But I actually did prefer the conversion of PCM audio to Atmos over just the straight pass through. I found my ears appreciated it a little bit more and it was a little less harsh. Harsh is the best way I can put it. And it was just uh, something to keep in mind. Not only do products like the Ultra automatically by default convert everything to Dolby Vision, it also converts to Dolby Atmos as well. And I wasn't sure if that was something that might have popped up with the recent 10.0 software update for Roku, but I have a feeling it's been there for a while and it was just something I never realized. So if you want the most accurate quote unquote audio experience from your Roku, do check your HDMI settings and make sure the pass-through mode is enabled. Otherwise, that thing's going to convert just about everything it receives into the glorious Dolby Atmos. <laughs> Be a glorious Dolby Atmos. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I actually did prefer it. I, I preferred the way it sounded better with the, the PCM audio original sources as streamed by a variety of different YouTube creators. Mm-hmm. Interesting note uh, from Projector Central, who's uh, a website we refer to quite a bit. Uh, they do very, very good work in the Projector universe. They uh, posted an article that Epson's suing Vava, claiming misleading UST specs. And I'm going to pull this quote. Epson says that various online and retail outlets advertise the Vava 4K as it is widely known as having either 6,000 or 2,500 lumens. And that third-party testing verifies that neither claim is accurate. This latest complaint is one that a series filed by Epson going back to 2018 against various brands for making misleading brightness claims, end quote. Ooh. This is an interesting one to look at, right? So Vava is something that's uh, got a lot of, you know, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement about the brand. And it's frustrating. Uh, we, you know, we talk about, uh, for example, most published contrast specs on television being uh, somewhere in between complete fabrications. Uh, you know, it's... You ever hear the joke about uh, 
Somebody's in a helicopter and they think they're above Seattle and they, they yell down and they get an answer that is technically correct but completely useless. And the pilot immediately makes a left turn and heads in the right direction. And the pastor's like, how did you know that? And he's like, well, you know, the answer was technically perfect but completely useless. Therefore, I was above the Microsoft headquarters. Um, and that's an old and rude joke. <laughs> yes. But technically, these contrast ratings can be accurate, but we've seen things like with the television off. Epson says if you use ISO 21118 to measure lumens, you know, it's 25% below the 2500 ANSI lumen spec and 70% below, you know, the 6000 lumen spec. You could argue ANSI versus ISO. This is something where a lot of brands get a little creative or a little aggressive with their advertising, or they figure out a way to make something sound better that they can hang their advertising on. So I can get where Epson's coming from with this. Totally. I always take a look at the lamp rating for a particular projector. Right. Most every projector you look at is using the same 300-ish watt lamp. And right. how one can have wildly different light output than another. Right. Some of that's definitely due to design and how the light goes through the engine and produces the picture you see. Some are more efficient mm -hmm. at that than others. However, if they're all using the same light bulb effectively, there isn't going to be a dramatic difference between different projectors that are out there. If you talk about what the calibrated picture quality is in a darkroom environment, what right. the max light output will be, just cut whatever they're saying in half. And that's about what it's going to be. Epson wants kind of everybody to use the same measurements. Hi-Fi did this back in the 70s, right? The FTC forced a, a, a standard measurement back in like 1974. Uh, projector Central notes that, quote, the projector industry is unregulated with regard to either brightness or contrast specifications. Uh, and in some levels, you know, for a lot of consumers, it may be a moot point, right? Because when you look at, for example, Amazon's ratings for the VAVA 4K USD laser TV home theater projector, it's like 1,404 ratings and the average rating is 4.6 out of 5. Imagine how much brighter their image could be if it actually lived up to the spec <laughs> or the claims. It's interesting because Epson's also a proponent of color brightness because of their right. three LCD designs. Each of the three primary colors, red, blue, and green, are at full color at all times when need be. Whereas with something right. like a DLP projector that most laser projectors are DLP based, it's only capable of showing a single color at any given moment in time. And your right. eye blends that together. On the color side of things, definitely some differences regarding... Uh, how bright or not a picture is as right. measured. And we would, we would be remiss if we didn't point out that, hey, Epson sells projectors. The VAVA 4K USD projector is fairly inexpensive at, you know, 2800 bucks. Epson's got their Epic Vision, the Ultra LS500, and they have ultra short throw laser projectors that have an actual lumen rating of somewhere in the neighborhood of like 4,000 lumens based on a legit spec. Uh, and they're more expensive. I think they would like very much for the claims field to be uh, leveled a bit. Something to think about on that one. I wouldn't get into a specs war with Epson. If there is a spec that everyone should follow when reporting these numbers, then I would agree that everyone should follow them. Just right. to make marketing a little more sane for the rest of us out there who are trying just to figure out, you know, when shopping in a store, which projector is going to give us decent light output. Again, as we always mention, when you finally calibrate one of these projectors and you're not using the vivid mode <laughs> that right. looks like ass, it's going to be about half of what most of them claim. 
it was nice that Projector Central added at the end of this uh, this notice about the lawsuit uh, that in their review of the Vava 4K uh, back in December 2020, that it was a, quote, solidly built projector with good components and features, but some notable flaws in its overall color balance and user interface, unquote. So... And it's also short throw versus not short throw. Uh, generally, right. the closer you can put the projector to the screen, the more light coming out of that projector is going to make it to the screen and then to your eyes mm -hmm. eventually. As long as Epson's doing relatively apples to apples comparisons. Then... Well, I think I think Epson wants apples to apples comparisons, which I don't think is an unreasonable thing to do. Most of the lawsuits in the past were on smaller projectors making really weird claims and and uh you know inexpensive projectors i'll tell you i will never buy a projector without first checking out projector central's reviews yeah and definitely the throw chart for how far away that projector can be or needs to be in order to light up a right. specific screen size <laughs> two very handy functions available right from their reviews well we'll see what kind of if anything comes out of this uh I have the feeling it is probably a tempest in a teapot as far as projector marketing goes. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. In a company statement, Epson specifically cited a recent pandemic-driven uptick in adoption of consumer home theater and the need to protect consumers. Quote, Vava's false lumens claims are misleading to consumers, and this misrepresentation of performance creates confusion amongst people looking at viable home entertainment solutions. So I think they're frustrated that they're not selling more projectors. Which, you know, is kind of the goal of a company selling projectors. In any case, we'll, uh, we'll leave that there. All right. I just want to say I'm incredibly disappointed that the $500 Macintosh MB20 Bluetooth transceiver does not have a giant blue VU meter on the front. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to leave that out there. Um, does it have a giant knob? Yeah. No. No, it's just a box. <laughs> it kind of looks like a Macintosh box. Aww. It is what it is. Well, you could mod that with some blue LEDs and be good to go. No, <laughs> I, I, I think the whole point of owning a Macintosh project is product is to have a giant blue meter on the front. Not all of them do, but I'm saying this with you know love and affection for a product category or a product manufacturer that's generally way beyond my pay grade. Uh, but I do love the giant blue meters. So THX came up with a category, certification category, uh, that we haven't really talked about. A, because we missed the initial announcement, uh, and B, because THX certified Dominus speakers, Dominus THX certification, that's performance classes, this device is capable of filling a particular room with sound. Dominus is something in the neighborhood of 184 cubic meters of space or 6,500 cubic feet, which is approximately the size of my entire basement, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Large. Large-ish. Large. THX certified Dominus, which I, I like saying Dominus because I keep expecting some sort of Marvel villain to come through the you know cinder block on my left. Dominus is kind of unhinged because they also do things like push 120 dB uh, with minimal distortion. This is, you know, over-the-top performance for a lot of people, uh, although I did find it interesting that they require a 92 decibel sensitivity requirement to get THX certified Dominus speakers, and that's actually more sensitive than any other THX certified speakers. I partially bring this up because the crew over at Audioholics actually got a set of the first, I believe, only Dominus 
certified speakers on the market. Uh, the S7 Tower speaker from Perlison, they were very, very pleased, which is good because this is like an $18,000 set of speakers. Very cool. I like the idea that uh, if you have a big-ass room, there is now a big-ass certification so that you can fill your big-ass room with big-ass sound. Just to be clear, Dominus is not a line of speakers from THX. That's just a new rating ah. system, correct? Yes, that okay. is correct. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As of, like, you know, 2020, it is the, quote, newest and largest performance class of THX certification. Room booming. Nice. Well... <laughs> you know there's a really wonderful shot on uh, audioholics.com where they show them doing um, free air measurements in a big old warehouse environment so this massive speaker is on a fairly massive stand so it was like 11 feet up in the air the problem is is the way they measure them um, you can't really get any proper measurements below like uh, 100 hertz or they right. say accuracy is completely lost below 100 hertz. One, it's fun to see the picture because it takes some effort to get measurements um, in a free air environment. It actually measures quite beautifully. It's fairly flat. And it looks like it does drop off. Well, you know what? I'll reread this a second time and, and dig into that. But as always, subwoofers make low-end performance better, even if you have $17,000 speakers. I'll just leave it right there. <laughs> Perfect couple things before we go david posted a suggestion on patreon.com slash avxl and david thank you so much for being a patron he says you talk about searching streaming sites for old movies etc have you tried the ios app just watch you can search and it will tell you if something is available to stream or rent i find it really helpful and uh thank you for the heads up on that david i've been experimenting with it and uh, if anybody else out there has a tip or a suggestion or an app or a favorite movie or album, do us a favor, email ask at avxl.com. Or if you're a patron, go ahead and post on patreon.com slash avxl. We would love to hear it. Uh, both Robert and I have been dealing with package delivery complications lately. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> mine was refused at the door of a house, which makes sense because they did not take it to my house. They took it to someone else's house. So thank you to whoever refused that package. Unfortunately, the package went back to Canada and it had to be sent back to the United States, uh, this time to the correct address uh, where it was not refused. You're having a whole set of weirdnesses with, is it FedEx? Yeah. That's plaguing you? It's very similar to the situation you ran into. Thank goodness for the security camera system that we have at a business where I had this package delivered to. They gave right. the tracking information. It said it was delivered at X time. I went and checked the footage and there was no FedEx driver that day. And just by coincidence, I checked some of the other views and at that exact time of delivery, as was stated on the tracking info, I see the FedEx van go zipping by and right to our next door neighbor and then <laughs> leaving within that time frame as well. So the mystery is really just they probably delivered it to the neighbor instead. And at this point, I'm dealing with a claim right now just to see if maybe they have contacted the person it was delivered to. Maybe they'll just cut me a check. Either way, it had nothing to do with anybody on the property. And the package never actually made it to the property. If there was ever a time where I've appreciated a camera system as much as I did right then, I can't think of it off the top of my head. It's just one of those things where I was able to actually go back a few days look at the footage and go, oh, okay, there was definitely not a FedEx driver delivering a package. And then somebody 
within the business took that and did something else with it. I was thinking at first, that's probably what happened. So I was just going to see where maybe somebody signed for it and just set it somewhere odd, but it turns out it never even arrived. I'm pleased yet at the same point, I still don't have my package and I need it. And before I go spend another, you know, <laughs> hundreds of dollars on hard drives, I would like to get some, some settling of this current, <laughs> of this current status and my claim on it. It just takes time. It could take up probably up to two weeks for this all to work out. Maybe within that time frame, the, uh, the neighbor will drop the package off and cause this all to resolve nicely, but it doesn't matter. I'm just happy that I had some personal resolution in terms of being able to verify what actually happened that day. Thanks to a nifty camera system. <laughs> Yay, nifty camera systems. Yeah. One last tweet before we go. At Jeff Urich tweeted, Catching up on the latest AVXL and thinking about outdoor projectors at sunset, I have a little factoid to share. Sun at the horizon is roughly 600,000 nits. Not a projector expert, but that's a lot of light to overcome. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Do not fight the sun with your <laughs> with projection yeah. setups. And it's a good reminder why in most of your outdoor environments where there is a display system being used, mm -hmm. they all pretty much transitioned over to LED-based displays. Uh, direct right. view LED is because they, they can make those damn bright. And they are good at combating the sun on a bright day and to remain visible and usable as display systems and not projectors. And the other reason, too, think about any drive-in movie theater that you may have ever seen on TV or experienced in person. Why do the movies wait until sunset to start? <laughs> and there you go. Don't fight the sun. It's kind of like listening to music on an airplane. You can't really listen to music quietly on an airplane or a bus because you have to overcome the background noise of the airplane or the bus. And there is no sun-canceling subsystem or algorithm on a projector. Well, there is. You take it indoors. But you see, that defeats the purpose of having a projector outdoors. Yep. Outdoor projection's awesome. But yeah, stick to the late, late afternoon, going into the evening. And you'll have the Let's stick to the stick to the after sundown performance. Yes, uh, and it'll look beautiful, and you can do it on a budget. Yes, yes. or not go crazy. <laughs> do what you got to do, people. Yeah, we're here for you. You got no money in a dorm room. You got all the money and acreage. We'll help you out. That's just how we roll. Tweet at Robert Heron or at Patrick Norton or at AVXL. Uh, at Robert Heron and at Patrick Norton, I think, works best if you want to talk to us on the Twitters. Uh, and if you want to get a hashtag going, pound ask AVXL works just fine. I'm not going to talk about anything I am watching this week until I decide whether or not it's amazing or awful. And I will talk about that next week. <laughs> All I know is it's Formula One weekend at Monaco. And I am looking forward to watching... The practice, the qualifying, and the race event itself. I need to check and see when the next MotoGP it. race is, too. I gotta get my motorsports on. More MotoGP races. Mm -hmm. Hey, if you want to help support us, we would appreciate that. And the best way to do it is patreon.com slash avxcel. That's where you can find, uh, well, it's our Patreon page. And uh, keep an eye out for an invitation to a hangout. And we're going to have some additional interviews that our uh, interview uh, recordings that we're going to share with our patrons. So patreon.com slash ABXL is the place to go. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on ABXL. <laughs>